Welcome to an episode of the podcast Art Insiders New York. My name is Anders Holst. We are excited to announce that the podcast had been awarded the Communicator Award by the Academy of Interactive and Visual Arts. I would like to take this opportunity to thank my guests who have generously donated their time out of the goodness of their hearts. Each month, it is the guest that makes the show. I would also like to thank you, the listeners, for tuning in as faithfully as you do. If you have family and friends who love New York and are passionate about the world of art, design and architecture, please spread the word, subscribe and write a review on iTunes or follow us at artinsidersnewyork.com. Thank you. We are very honored to have Susan Lacey as our guest today. She's a master of the biographical documentary genre. She has created directed and served as executive producer of the Emmy award-winning PBS series American Masters, by many considered to be the gold standard of documentary filmmaking. In this fascinating interview, Susan talks about the origins of American Masters. She also shares stories and reflects on the essence of documentaries she produced about Jane Fonda and Steven Spielberg and her latest documentary called Very Ralph, about the iconic American fashion designer Ralph Lauren. Today in New York, we are still in the coronavirus uh, pandemic, but that doesn't stop us from getting in touch with interesting and hugely successful people. Today we have Susan Lacey on the phone. Susan is out in Sag Harbor. Yes, I am. Loving it. Looking at here, oh, I had um, I, we had a duckling that was nested up off our balcony of our bedroom, and she finally hatched. And we had all these little ducklings swimming in our pool. Oh <laughs> it was goodness. so cute this morning. Yeah, <laughs> I'm in the urban canyon of Manhattan. I have to go out and see if I can spot any dogs. Maybe that will cheer me up. <laughs> well, you have a good, good, good day. You know, that's how I spent uh, the COVID-19 uh, quarantine here. I made a list of all documentaries that I'd like to see. And oh, well, tell me some of them. I'm curious. I listened to James Taylor. He has a book on uh, Audible where he talks about himself and, and, and the music. And also I listened to Patty Boyd. She, re she reads it herself and she has such a beautiful voice. Um, and it's very sincere, and, and you get so moved at times because it, it really is tough life to be married to people like that. I, I saw they, they did this uh, tribute uh, concert, and everybody was there. I mean, Eric Clapton and George Harrison, they were the best of friends, even though, they, you know, whatever happened. Well, they got over it. The concert for George, it's a wonderful, wonderful film. And I, was, uh, I knew the people who made it re really well, and... Um, And then Marty did that um, film about George Harrison, which if you haven't seen, you should see. No, I haven't seen. I haven't seen his Bob Dylan movie either, actually. Well, that that I produced. Wow. That I produced that. You're everywhere. It took, me, it took me ten years to get Bob Dylan, and I knew that his manager was telling was interviewing people because Jeff Rosen has been his manager for 40 years or something, and he's a film historian and a music historian and really knows his stuff. And he was quietly doing interviews with people because he knew that they would, might not be around, you know. And I knew about it. I wasn't the only one who knew about it. So I, I would call him once a month for 10 years. <laughs> and I say, okay, are we ready to have a film? Are we ready to have a film yet? And he said, no, 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 not ready, not ready. One day he called me 
And he said, can you come over? I've got something to show you. So I went over and he, Bob Dylan had finally done an interview. Before then, Jeff wasn't sure he would ever do an interview. So he was basically doing this for the archive. He didn't know that this was ever going to be a film. Because Bob might have said, I don't want it. I don't want this film. But Bob had finally done an interview and he showed it to me. And it was, I started to cry. I, I knew this was historic. And then I laughed because I realized that he didn't mumble. No. He could speak clearly. I don't know if you know this, but he always mumbled in interviews so that nobody would ask him any more questions. <laughs> <laughs> and, but he spoke clearly and he was great. It was beautifully shot. I said, well, can we do this? And he said, look, I'm going to, because you were the most persistent. I, I want you to have this. But I don't think you can financially do this on your own. You need a partner. And I'm going to introduce you to a Hollywood partner uh, named Nigel Sinclair. And we got together, and I suppose I can tell this. And we said, well, what's your budget be? And I, I was just picking a figure out of the hat. I said, maybe $4 million. Yeah. He said, okay, I'll commit $2 million. Can you commit to me? I said, yeah, sure. And I walked out of there. I, I didn't get even $2 million from PBS. <laughs> so I was just not going to not do this. I was not going to have this not be me. So I called, and we had agreed to split it. So I had to go. I was going to have to go back to my station and ask them to front me $2 million, which I knew they would say no to. Yeah. So I called up the woman at that time who was running, who was head of programming, and she lived in L.A. And I said, you have to meet me right now. So we went to have a drink, and I said, this is what's happening. I can commit $300,000 out of the American Masters budget because that's all I have for each film. I have a 50000 for each film, but this is going to be two parts. So I'm going to allocate 300000 as the license fee. Now, my CFO at the time did not know who Bob Dylan was. <laughs> That's a problem. <laughs> I was like, really? I said, go home and ask your children. So he called me the next day and he said, well, I, okay, I, I listened to it. That, he said, that man can't sing. <laughs> and anyway, it took me forever to convince him. And I remember when I did, I said, look, if you don't do this, I'm going to mortgage my, my brownstone. Yeah. That's when he agreed to do it. We were able to pre-sell it to, you know, BBC. There was somebody as passionate as I was there. And we got this huge advance from Paramount for the DVD, right? I mean, a big one, really big one. And, of course, then we hired Martin Scorsese. Hmm. And he never looked at the budget or the schedule again. <laughs> so, naturally, it cost more than $4 million. <laughs> we sold over a million DVDs. Wow. Nobody had ever done that before. Wow. And you know what that did? It created a market. It, I created my own competition. And then, all of a sudden, now HBO was licensing the George Harrison film for a huge amount of money that Marty did next. Living in the material world is yes. what it's called. And I knew it was over for me. I would not be able to put that together again because people could just pay for it themselves and go license, license it to yeah. HBO. But anyway, that's one of my proudest moments is that film. And you should see it. It's really good. And it only covers up to the time that he had the motorcycle accident. It only covers eight years. It's the best documentary about an artist in the process of becoming that you'll ever see. When I did my research on you, uh, Susan, I, I realized that you are a 14-time primetime Emmy-winning director. Producer and director. Of American Masters. Now, did I get that right 14 times? Well, we actually have 72 Emmy nominations <laughs> and, we w and more than 14 wins. Um, 
we won, I think, 10 years in a row, we won for Outstanding Documentary Series. I mean, that's a big deal, 10 years in a row. When I talk about uh, that I'm going to interview you, people say, oh, American Masters, oh, I, I watch all of them. It's a very popular program. What do you think explains uh, the popularity here? Why do people watch? I, I created it. I ran it for 30 years, yeah. and then I got poached by HBO. I really almost didn't take their offer because I was so passionate about American Masters that it was like in my blood. I like opened a vein every year to keep it going. <laughs> Two things happened. I sat on the contract for a long time, and then one day I woke up and I said, you know, Susan, this uh, you're 65 years old. Nobody's going to offer this to you again, and you're crazy if you don't uh, jump at it because what they wanted is for me to just make films. I, did, I didn't have to raise the money. I could ju just direct films. And, um, and, and raising the money was getting to be significantly harder. Yeah. Not because people didn't love the series, but all the uh, PBS never funded it properly. And so all the sort of tools that I had that I could, you know, patchwork the funding together for these films uh, began to dry up. The DVD market didn't exist anymore. When we were doing something like Bob Dylan, we got a huge advance from Paramount to help make that film. So that went away. And, and, and foreign, the foreign market changed a lot. There used to be a fair number of series worldwide, like BBC had Arena and, you know, South Bank Show. I don't know if you know these things, but mm -hmm. there were series that were like American Masters in many countries. So uh, we used to be able to go to markets and pre-sell the films if they were a big enough uh, American subject that would be of interest. They all disappeared. I mean, BBC, my counterpart there, you know, is down to like two films a year or something. Yeah. I think that the broadcasters think people aren't interested in it. Mm -hmm. And that goes to my story about when you ask me, why are people interested? When I first had this idea, nobody was interested at all. I mean, PBS thought I was, first of all, I didn't have, I didn't have any experience. <laughs> I mean, I'd been a <laughs> I'd been a programmer. I'd been the deputy head of arts and performance programs at Channel 13. Yeah. I had never produced anything. But I had this idea, which came out of my academic background um, in American studies. I have a whole bunch of degrees in that. I just knew this was a good idea. I knew that, that recording the cultural history of America and creating a library of that yeah. was important to do. And that we had the technology to do it and we had the technology to do it with people who were still alive and i used to say to people imagine that we had had this ability to capture matisse other than robert kappa's photographs if we had him on camera working and talking and yeah. talking about what he cares about and where it comes from and his family and his childhood wouldn't that be so we 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 should be doing that yeah <laughs> and they were like nobody cares about th this susan and I said, yes, they do. You just don't know it because you put it on at 3 o'clock in the morning and then has no audience. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. We have to make them break. They can't be, you know, Sunday morning television. These are dramatic stories. They're important stories. They have so much drama in them. So much, you know, people working against the odds, changing a discipline, uh, fighting their demons. Many artists have a lot of demons. Mm. Uh, it's a lot to overcome. And... And ultimately, it's about this work that has changed our world, mm. whether it's dance or photography or architecture or movies or, you know, photography. 
these these stories have to be told and they have to be told really well. They have to be as excellent as the artists we're making films about. And that costs a lot of money. <laughs> they didn't want to pay. They wanted to pay for A and E biography. And I didn't want to do A and E biography. I wanted to do I wanted to make great, memorable films that would last forever. Yes. So I had to go out and raise the money to do that. Yeah. And uh, and what we found after the first season, I basically gave the first season to PBS. I was like, not going to have. I was not going to be deterred. I was going. <laughs> to make, I was going to make this happen. Yeah. And uh, and I did. And then I saw. Oh, I also suggested that we put the first season on in the summer of 1986. If you recall. 1986, there were three networks and PBS. Yes. And everybody else was in the uh, repeats. So I said, put it on in the summer. You have to put it on in prime time in the summer. And they're like, okay, let's try that experiment. Well, we, we, we got all the TV magazines because <laughs> there was nothing else to write about. And I, I hadn't even thought about that. You have to have prime time and you have to have common carriage, meaning that there's eight hours a week in which the PBS system has to run the same programs at the same time. You could attract corporate underwriting because they would have the guarantee that there would be a, a nationwide audience. It took forever to get that through, by the way. <laughs> so I thought the only way I could get prime time was to suggest the summer. It hadn't occurred to me that we'd be the only new thing to write about. <laughs> so the critics loved it from the beginning because the films, they were meaty. They had layers to them and textures and they were important films. They were telling very dramatic stories and they weren't cookie cutter. Every film was totally different depending on who we were making the film about. Now, the first season, we didn't make that much of it originally because since there had not been a series like this, who are the best filmmakers who are making films and they can't get them finished? because nobody will give them the money because they don't have a place to put it. You know, chicken and egg situation. A great filmmaker who had a passion to make a film about Aaron Copeland couldn't get the money to finish to fit to the, the grants to do it because they say, well, where's it going to broadcast? So we created that place. And so then I went around and found all the great projects that couldn't be finished and we put up the money to finish them. And Put them, get them on the air. That started it. We had a huge audience, hmm. and people love the films. Now, why do they love them? Because they're good stories, hmm. and people are interested in people. If you are a good storyteller, and yeah. you are making a film that's not preaching at you or didactic or Reader's Digest, you're making a real film. People are going to be drawn to that story, and they may not be drawn to every story. Some people like music more than that. Kind of but once we got the reputation of there's always going to be something interesting, mm -hmm. even if you're not, even if you don't know this, who it is. It's going to be interesting. We had a, a good audience for PBS, you know, network ratings, but we did very well. And, um, and we started winning all these awards. PBS paid no attention to the series for the longest time because they weren't watching the f they didn't know how good it was. And then we started winning all these awards. But I'm, four I'm looking at 14 people. <laughs> And then they go, oh, I guess, I guess we ought to pay attention to this. I still didn't get more money. But um, so anyway, I, I had a, I love PBS. I think it's a really important to have it. Public television is really important. And I didn't want to do it anymore. So that's why I left. But anyway, that's a long way of answering your question.
We're going to talk about your latest documentary, Very Ralph, that premiered in November uh, last year on HBO. But before uh, we do that, though, um, you did uh, two other documentaries, one about Jane Fonda, and you said at the time that this was probably your best movie that you've done so far. Now, you've done a couple of others after that. Why, why was that? Well, actually, the, be- I, we wanted, the, the film I think is the best film I've ever made was about Leonard Bernstein. Yeah, all-time all favorite film. But Jane, I love me. First of all, she's very open. Her story is, in many ways, every woman's story in, mm. in different ways. And and that's what I, that's the film I wanted to make. I wanted to make, I didn't want to make a film about a movie star. I wanted to make a film about a woman who had taken an enormous, dramatic, thought journey to find herself. Mm. That's an interesting trip to go on, and yeah. she's and she was very open with me. We formed a very nice relationship, and uh, and I thought it was important. And I knew that there would be, you know, every woman has has had one or another experience that Jane's had, and she had them all. She had an unfaithful husband. She had an unemotional, unemotionally indifferent father. She had a complicated relationship with her children. I mean, you know, she had a complicated relationship with her body. Yeah. You no, know? I mean. <laughs> Her father told she was fat, so she spent the rest of her life not eating yeah. and exercising like crazy. I mean, there, there was something in her story that almost every woman could identify with. Yeah, I find it so interesting when she said that, uh, you know, in, in these documentaries that you do, you, you get a split-second glimpse into the psychology of their life. And in this, in this situation, when I, I remember when she said that uh, she, she was, you know, she couldn't live without a man that give her structure and purpose in life, which is very surprising because she seems so strong. And, and, uh, and of course, she finds herself later in the fifth act, as, as you pointed out before. Well, I think that this all stemmed from her complicated relationship with her father, who never told her he loved her. I think he did. I mean, Tom Hayden says in the film, you could see it in his eyes and in his body language, the fact that he couldn't actually say it is tragedy. But, um, And I think he was very critical of her as she was growing up, and he was very absent. So I think Jane was looking for love, and, and she thought she had to be, when she found the guy, like she had to be who they wanted her to be. Yeah. Have her own being, yet yeah, that she could say, I, this is who I am. So if Roger Vadim wanted her to be a sex kitten and, you know, she... And, and live a hedonistic life. She went along with that. Yeah. Until and then you see it in the film. Until her eyes opened up when she saw what was happening in her own country with Vietnam, and she said, "I have to be part of this." Yeah. Um, and then she she trans she transforms into the most gorgeous hippie you've ever seen. But you know, she stops wearing makeup <laughs> and has long hair parted in the middle, uh, and you know, wears peri skirts. I mean, this is unbelievably interesting and. She lived that life for a long time, which was ge- very genuine. Don't get me wrong. I mean, no, no. she doesn't regret any of these lives that she's had. And I, I think she became a genuine activist there. And uh, and then, you know, Ted Turner, who she became kind of corporate wife for him, but felt stifled. Yeah. I mean, you know, despite the fact that I think they had a lot of love for each other and a very interesting life. And he was very funny and wonderful to be with. I think she um, she felt stifled. And as she said, I became a feminist while I was married to him. Like, she came late to feminism. But she, what, you know what she said? 
that she thought feminism was a distraction from the real issues, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and then she woke up and realized that she was indeed a feminist and she'd always been in some way, there was always some little part of her there. So anyway, it's a, it's a great story. Yeah, I, and I love the way you structure the story because it, it, it is really in five acts. And when you watch it, you have these questions in your mind popping up about her childhood. So it all builds up to, to that point where you sort of get some kind of a, a resolution, some kind of, uh, um, I don't know, you, you, see, you see the light there. Everything comes together. and, and uh, She finds out the truth about her mother. Yeah. And she's able to forgive her mother and forgive herself. There is some parallel because she had a tr she was in the midst of having a troubled relationship with her, with Vanessa, her own daughter. And she said, "I hope one day my daughter will be able to forgive me." I mean, it was just amazing, you yeah. know, because uh, she said, "You can't know who you are until you know who your parents are yeah. and what they were going through and your grandparents." Yeah. You know, her mother did kill herself, and she never knew why, yeah. and she was angry with her all the time, angry, 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 until she found the, these medical records and learned what had happened to her mother. It couldn't be more dramatic. I think that's, uh, that documentary is absolutely fantastic and, and um, very interesting. And then... Did you see my Spielberg film? I, I certainly did. So let's talk about that. Uh, what was the essence of that, that documentary? I uh, grew up on, you know, watching Jaws at E.T. and Close Encounters. You know, he's a master craftsman, but he's not uh, an auteur. He's not, you know, he's not, his soul isn't in these movies. And I, no. I, didn't, I, I knew that, was, I didn't believe it. And I watched all these movies, and I thought, he's all over his, these movies. It's just more subtle. I wanted to show that. I wanted to show how he, the, those lines of connection between his life experience and his movies and his choice of movies that to make. He's a very purposeful person. So when he was young, he drew on his childhood because he really didn't have any other experience. He was raised in Phoenix, Arizona, yeah. <laughs> and did no art films. You know, he wasn't like Marty, who you know grew up watching Italian cinema and all this stuff. He didn't know, so he, he drew on his childhood, and he drew. You know, and you can see that. Oh my God, E.T. and Close Encounters. I mean, there's scenes in them. They're right out of the scenes in his family. You know, parents' divorce, which had a huge impact on him. And then, of course, he. He was always interested in, you know, there are many films that have young people at the center of them. And finally, you know, he gets to Schindler's List where he he makes it because he is coming back to Judaism, which he had denied. Hmm. And he had denied the anti-Semitism that he felt as a young, he didn't want to talk about it. And it brought it all back to him. So it's a very personal film. And then something changed. He, by when he finally got recognized, finally with an Oscar after having like six movies in the most, uh, which is uh, incredible. How that I mean, happens. the highest, you know, um, what, what's the word? He made the most money. Yeah, uh, had six, you know, a like blockbuster movies until he finally got recognized with an Oscar. Then he was sort of an elder, and something changed. And uh, I wanted to show that and he was still always going to do a Jurassic Park kind of thing because there's a part of him that's always going to have a little child in him but he's, he he recognized the importance uh that position that he was in at that point yeah. to tell important his, historical stories and uh and 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 he wanted to make those for his children you look at that and his you know he was very prescient i mean minority report is a very prescient film but munich 
That's a masterpiece, in my opinion, as is Lincoln. And so anyway, it's just, it's, it's, it's Stephen in his movies is, was the essence of it. And of course, it went beyond that. Not every movie had a piece of Stephen in it. But I wanted to show that he was indeed a very personal filmmaker and had been kind of, kind of underrated. I think it was mentioned there that um, you, you said that uh, I read somewhere that Steven Spielberg has never seen a licensed therapist, but sitting down with you 17 times might have been the next best thing. <laughs> Maybe you should take up a side business. <laughs> well, when he saw the film, by the way, my subjects never see the film until they're practically, I mean, literally three days before locking picture. I send it to them because uh, somebody asked me, why do you do that? And I said, well, You know, I'm at an age now, if somebody takes my picture on a phone, I say, hand it to me. And if I don't like it, I delete it. I said, I understand vanity. And, uh, and you know, everybody's getting older. So you don't want them to hate the film because every time they see it, they see one shot of themselves that they where they think they look horrible. Yeah. It's just not worth it. Yeah. So I don't send it to them for editorial input. Uh, I send it for, have I... Did I misstate something? Is there a factual error? Or is there, is there something about, is there anything that you don't like the way you look? Yeah. And, uh, Jane had only two comments. She said, you didn't make it clear that I was cleared of treason. Yeah, I mean, I, you're, I said, you're absolutely right. I didn't make that clear. She said, and it makes it look like I have no relationship with my daughter. And in fact, we're working very hard on it. And I said, very valid thing to say. So I added something that, that did that. Stephen really had no, I mean, what he said when he called me after he saw it for the first time, Yeah, he called me and he said, pretty bold of you, Susan, to start a movie about a filmmaker with somebody else's movie. <laughs> and I went, oh, shit. I went, my heart just dropped. And he said, I love it. Because <laughs> I started with Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. And I did that on purpose because that's where he says I almost gave up my idea of being a director because I didn't think I'd ever be that good. A couple of things are established there. One was what inspired him. Mm. What was he inspiring to? And it was very different from what Marty, for example, inspired to. He didn't want to be an independent, scrappy filmmaker. He wanted to be David Lean. He wanted to be a big, you know, studio uh, filmmaker. And then he said, I feel like I've been in therapy for 12 years <laughs> <laughs> watching this movie. But he was so generous uh, with his time mm -hmm. for me. Uh, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe how, if I had told him at the beginning, I want this many interviews would never have happened. Yeah. I didn't expect that. But after each interview, he'd say, that was fun. When are we doing this again? Oh. And we put something in the calendar and they said, this is great. When are we doing this again? <laughs> and finally, after the, you know, 30 hours, I, we both said, maybe we have enough now. <laughs> anyway, so that was, I love making that film too. And he wrote me the most beautiful letter. Uh, that actually framed. I mean, it was. I mean, you know, you get a letter like that from Steven Spielberg, yeah. and it was. Us, G did a great job. It's a lengthy letter yeah. where he talks about what he loved about my filmmaking and what it did for him and his family. It was. It's a beautiful letter. That's incredible. Again, you get this sort of understanding of his psyche when he talked when he was young, and he talked about I have to go from one movie to the next, otherwise my demons start to manifest, and I, and I, I get derailed. It was very interesting, and also then when he talked about uh, uh, begin in the beginning of a shoot when when anxiety sets in, and and then it goes up to panic, and then that's when he gets all the good ideas. <laughs> that's what he said. And then what better example of that than Jaws? Yeah. <laughs> where he had everything.
everything going against him, everything, the weather, the shark didn't work, whatever. And he came with, with really smart solutions, which actually make the film much scarier. Yeah, I love the interview with Richard uh, Dreyfus when he says that he was hired on May 3rd, but they didn't have a script and the shark didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> and it took double the time to film on water. I think that's that's very, very... Because he was new at this. He was only 26 years old. Yeah. Um, he was new. He was sure every single day they were going to fire him because they were definitely over budget, over schedule, and, but he insisted on shooting in open water, which was the only way that he said it could be the film it could be. And you kind of love that about people. I mean, the other thing I'm really interested in and in trying to find is what motivates people. Mm-hmm. What are they trying to achieve with their work? And and what's their process of getting there? I'm really interested in that stuff. And I'm also very interested. It didn't work so much with Stephen. Because that's not true. It kind of did. You know, the choice to do Schindler's List, the choice to do Munich. Uh, and Lincoln. I mean, the, the cross-section of history and what's going on in the world. I think he's less of a filmmaker about that, but not, I mean, he, War of the Worlds is a, is a real statement about uh, 9-11. Yeah. Um, and Minority Report, you could make that movie today and go, oh my God, was he prescient there? You know, as Tony Kushner says, artists are the, the canary in the coal mine. You know, they let us know what's going to happen, what's happening. You know, this cross-section of social and political and cultural world in which this is happening, and you combine that with looking at the individual life story of each, and then the, the work. That's what I try to do. I try to put those pieces together in some way. So I, I love the, the the scenes when you follow how Steven Spielberg works with the actors and, and everybody else on, on the set. And also the same thing, we're going to talk about uh, uh, Ralph Lauren here in a, in a bit, and the same thing there, when he is in action, when he's working, that is really the, uh, it's very interesting to see. Have you ever thought about doing a documentary where you only follow a person? When there is no narrative or interviews, where you just you just give the the raw action of this person, uh, I would love to do that. It's um to do that about people who are less famous. Be honest, but if you're Steven Spielberg, you don't want somebody following you around with a camera all the time. There's a lot of you know. There's a privacy part to you know, and that walking that fine line between access genuine access invading the privacy of the, you know they're very careful about everybody you know i you know you can't have any shop that shows where where they live yeah that, you know that kind of thing and the, and their children all that so and and also i mean steven invited me to berlin when he was shooting um bridge of spies and he invited vancouver when he was doing the bfg but i didn't have roaming rights for you know everything on the set he he decided what i could film would i've loved to have been able to to do the casting and auditions and the whole <laughs> thing but you know that's also you have to get everybody else to agree to that so yeah. i think if you are a young starting out artist or you are at the end of your at the end of your 
creative life and you don't care anymore. Maybe it's easier to get that kind of access, but um, it was really hard to get Ralph to agree to let me film him at work. How did you convince him that this was a great idea? He really didn't want to do it because he said, Susan, there has to be some mystery here. I don't want, you know, I mean, he has built a brand based on image. Yeah. And part of the image is this, these worlds that he's created and it's, which have a reality doesn't enter in, let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> so he was like, at first, I don't want, I don't want to take the mystery out of this. You know, I, I, I want, I want to keep it the way it is. And I said, well, Ralph, then it's going to be a really boring film. <laughs> I'm sorry. I said you are you are you know 80 years old and yeah. uh, you still go to work every day and and you still do and to me that is inspiring. It's going to inspire other people and they're going to feel like oh my god he t you know he took the veil off a little bit and it isn't the, the whole movie isn't an illusion. It's real. You got to mm -hmm. be real. And he bought it. I mean he said okay. <laughs> Didn't love it. And he didn't love it at all, but he got used to it after a while. And I really enjoyed doing it. It was really interesting to watch him work with his people. Yeah, that, that, that was fascinating. So what I found also interesting is when you talk about that um, he is a director. He is, you know, you can say he's a fashion designer, but he, he sees himself as a, some kind of a director. He writes through his clothes. It's about fantasy and movies, and uh, he's more like an auteur in a way, maybe than a traditional designer. If he said it once, he said it hundreds of times. I'm not really a fashion designer. <laughs> I was actually going to call the film that once. Ralph Lauren, I'm not a fashion designer because he he is not. He doesn't do any of the traditional things that fashion designers do. He doesn't sew or drape or sketch or you know any of those things, which he freely admits. What he does is is create characters and tell stories. And many of his, uh, you know, his work, I mean, the things, he basically grew up watching the movies and loving, you know, I showed that in the film, showing yeah. what he's attracted to. And then he'd say, God, I love that hacking jacket. I want a hacking jacket like that. And he'd go to try to find it, couldn't find it. That wasn't as good as what was in the movies. So he just made it. Hmm. And that's, that's kind of how the first stuff kind of came about. He designed what he wanted. As Woody Allen says very brilliantly, I think he was banking on the fact that what he wanted, millions of other people were going to want too. I mean, those 17-page ads insert into nobody had ever done that before, yeah. and they really they they did them like they were movies. They created characters, they dressed the set, yeah. and they were telling a story in this. And I think that he always says, if I wasn't a fashion there wasn't in fashion i would have wanted to be a film director he got to carry out that fantasy a little bit through his you know his ads and his um his photo spreads yeah it's interesting how his uh, inspiration goes from the american west to hemingway to british tailoring to ivy league it's like uh he is he's he's the main he's the star of his own movie yeah. <laughs> you know he started selling ties and he said it's not about the tie it's about the hero i thought that was very yeah very, you know. yeah and he started selling ties out of a drawer in the empire state building yeah and his in-laws were sewing the labels into the tie think about that for a minute just think about that is a start yeah where this ended up it's a, that to me it's a phenomenal business story as well you know it's a, a business story that's built on the american dream 
That's right. And, and, and I think that comes across uh, very clearly in the documentary. It's very interesting because it, it explains also, I guess, the success that he had because this, this framework allowed him to be very creative and build something. Uh, and I think that's the, the, that's the second thing that I, that I think is so interesting with him, his business acumen, that he is such a... He also promoted diversity. Um, he created an incredible retail environment. and uh... You know, when I started the film, I did not realize what an ex extraordinary pioneer he really was. He was the first to do all of these things. And I remember one of the critics <laughs> you know, just said, you're so complimentary about him. If it's a fact that somebody's the first to do something, you know, there was no criticism in the film. Well, there's criticism in the film. There definitely is. I can remember four places where there's criticism in the film. And one is uh, that he's not original. He's not, he's not original. Uh, it's not where you go for the cutting edge. He knows what he does, and he knows what people like it, and that's what he likes, and he just does that. The other is that you could, as Paul Goldberger says, I think you did Paul Goldberger, right? Yes. It was a great interview. He said, you could make fun of this. I mean, you could. You could, yeah. you know, but there's no irony in it. Ralph Lauren is doesn't have an ironic bone in his body. So while we may look at this and say there's, you know, this consistent optimism and rosiness in this world that he shows us is something you could make fun of, he said it's absolutely totally real to him. Yeah. And then there's of course the uh, at the end of the film with the two leading fashion journalists of our time from the Post, Washington Post, and New York Times. Both saying that this aspirational uh, notion of the he's built this brand on the notion of the American dream is access and available and accessible to everybody, and that's not true anymore. It's simply not true. And can this business survive that? And I thought I was pretty brave of me to put that in there, um, and I don't think he loved it. But um, he's a big boy, and he understood that. Yeah, and it may be an existential threat to the whole concept as we move into a much more diverse world. I mean, we see it outside outside the streets here that, you know, the public sentiments are, are going in a different direction here. But I also think that he is very clear on who he is. I mean, he talks about that. He says, no, I hate fashion. You know, I have an eye and that's all. He is not pretentious in that way, trying to be someone he is not. That's absolutely true. And, and I, I really like that about him. I mean, he, he tells on himself, you know, a lot when he says, you know, I never went to fashion school. When he did his first fashion show, he'd never been to a fashion show. <laughs> I, mean, I, couldn't, I mean, honestly, there's, there's a kind of belief in himself that was really attractive to me. Um, but he's also very honest. He says, I'm, I'm who I am, you know, and I know what I like and I know what I do. And Anna Winter says it beautifully. People come and go there because anybody who tries to tell Ralph how to do things differently, it's, it's, he's not, he doesn't, he's not going to listen. He does what's worked for him, and he's not getting off that train. No, and I also like, like the fact that he said, I, I was never relevant. I always did my own thing, and uh, not too hot, not too cold. When you have such a, a successful person, you are expecting that there will be some revelation in a documentary. I mean, it's like people are expecting Keith Richard to be high on heroin all the time, right? I mean, it's, it's just he stopped 30 years ago, but it's part of our fantasy. And, and, and I guess that's also maybe part of the reaction here. People are saying, well, there are no, there are no uh, 
you know, there are no secrets here. There's no nothing, you know. That does make it a little harder when there is no drama. <laughs> and, and his was a steady rise. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there is that moment where he, he overextended himself. And, you know, I, I have that story in there where they they just couldn't keep up with the, they couldn't deliver. Yeah. And they almost lost, he almost lost the business. And that was a very real moment when he, I, I said, well, how'd that make you feel? What I remember most is being afraid to tell my father yeah. that I'd lost my business. And it was a very real moment. Um, but other than that, it was, you know, bigger, better, more success, more success, more success, you know, expansion, branding. Preferred he had a few failures. I'm only kidding. <laughs> it just adds a little drama to the story. Yeah. Did you ever talk about the Holston parallel at all when you talked to him? I saw the Holston documentary here on CNN uh, a couple of weeks ago. Oh, God. I mean, he went to Studio 54 every night, you know. I mean, he <laughs> sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I mean, it's a really different story. Ralph's a family man. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and, he, and he doesn't like to go to places. He really likes a private life. I love that moment, though, when he said, you know, one day I realized we weren't being invited anymore. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think they've forgotten us. He said, you know, you, may, you don't want to necessarily go, but you, you still want to be invited. <laughs> I thought that was a really wonderful moment where he admitted, you know, that. that but he, they, he couldn't, the polar opposites is what they were. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, they're totally different stories. And Paulson isn't around anymore. That no. life caught up with him, unfortunately. But it's it's interesting, though, that Ralph uh, Lauren seemed to have a little bit of two sides. I mean, he seemed to be a, an introvert and, and shy. On the other hand, he is, or he was at least, a lot in the ads. I mean, he has a very, also, extrovert uh, personality where he was basically the main character in his in his movie. I mean, I tried to address that in the film, and I think Ken Burns says it very well. You know, the man who's made himself the image of his brand is also a very shy person, but there isn't that much daylight. I love that expression. I just think he knew that he looked good in his clothes and, you know, he wanted to be the star of his movie. I mean, there's no there, there's no subterfuge about that. He liked being the face of his brand. Yeah. The difficult part of that as a filmmaker, if you're the face of the brand, you don't want to mess with the illusions. I understand. And maybe, and maybe there isn't. Maybe there isn't anything else. You know, maybe this this is the story. Yeah. And uh, and there isn't much uh, much else. No big secrets beneath the surface. Uh, and, you know, I mean, everybody always has a secret or so, and uh, he probably has some too. But <laughs> that's not my job. My, it's not my job to out anybody. No. <laughs> I tried in the end just to make it about the American dream, but not just what he was thinking but why it why it sold mm. it, it tapped into the, the zeitgeist and the consciousness around the world yeah and i found that ultimately to be what was really interesting about that film yeah. and the fact that it wasn't just you know white suburban kids who wore polo shirts that's why i had the whole hip-hop section in there wasn't that fascinating yeah you know and and i love that i had that it really gave you know juice to it because everybody participates in the American dream in some way. and No, I think it's interesting how you strike the balance. Because, and you mentioned that before here. You know, you, have, you get access and people are opening up to you. Uh, you, of course, as a documentary filmmaker, has a responsibility of telling uh, the truth. Now, so how do, you, how do you negotiate between those two things? 
Have you ever done a project without the consent of a person? Well, in American Masters, I made, I wouldn't do a film unless we have the cooperation of the subject or the estate. And there's very good reason for that. No, they signed something. Everybody I've ever made a film about in all American Masters that they, they, do, they, do, they do not have editorial control. But if you have their cooperation, you can have a much better film. Yeah. You're going to get the letters. You're going to get the diaries. You're going to get the photos. You're going to get the home movies. You're going to get, and they won't tell all their friends, don't talk to the filmmaker. You know, they, they help. I mean, Stephen sent a letter out to everybody I wanted to interview saying, you know, it's okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm participating. I'm cooperating with this film. That doesn't mean he controls the film. It means he's cooperating. Yeah. Uh, and same with Jane, same with Ralph. So it's going to be a better film. Um, you know, it's not a gotcha situation. Uh, but also, I've never made a film about somebody like Jeffrey Epstein. So that might be very different. I mean, listen, these films don't happen without trust. There has to be trust. That's the most important ingredient. I mean, Stephen didn't do 30, over 30 hours with me, well over 30 hours, if he didn't trust me. And you can't betray that trust. On the other hand, you do need to address legitimate issues or criticism in the work. And, and all of those do. I mean, Jane, he didn't have to do it with Jane. Jane's cr critical enough. <laughs> She's so self-critical. It's just there. But, you know, I had to make sure that, you know, I addressed the fact that, that Stephen took a lot of brick bats for the fact that he's very sentimental. And his films, like, you know, everything gets tied up nicely at the, at the end. Yeah. And that was one of the things about Munich that I thought was so great is he didn't, he didn't do that. No. He left that. He, he didn't feel he needed to do that. And he was making a statement and not doing that. So he had grown. He had grown as a filmmaker. You know, people blamed him for ruining the movie business because he had such blockbuster hits. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's irritating yeah. when he's so successful. It's irritating. Yeah. Uh, but you know, look, there are people who hated Schindler's List, who didn't think he should have made it. Why make a story about the one good German? I didn't cover that. I actually had it in the film. This is really interesting. I had it in the film around Schindler's List, and then I was watching it myself, going through because you know when you're editing, you don't stop every five minutes and watch the whole film again you do a lot of edits and then you say okay better watch it all the way through again now and when i got to that point i said i don't want to i don't want to hear any criticism at this point in this film <laughs> i don't want to hear it i'm not doing it for him i took it out because i didn't want to hear it i thought he'd made a masterpiece and i didn't want to hear the other, the other side of the argument to that so you make decisions and it wasn't for any reason other than my own response at that moment in the film Does that make any sense to you yeah I, I love that that quote when when uh, what's his name now who played the who played Schindler what's his name uh, Liam Neeson right Oh he's so wonderful <laughs> and he said I'm looking I'm looking for for the quote here um, now he he was complaining a little bit right because he got, he got very detailed direction and he was complaining to somebody micromanaged <laughs> <laughs> I was basically telling me how to breathe <laughs> and then Ben Kingsley said it's a great quote every soloist needs a great conductor go with Stephen on this yeah. and Liam Neeson said he did and of course he gave an amazing performance I, uh, there's no editorial control but I do allow the subject when they've seen the film if there's something in there they wish they hadn't said they have the right to ask me to take it away yeah. that's the only thing that I give when you are working on these projects, do you have um, a set of ideas that you embark upon or do you just start by 
collecting data and interviewing people and, and see where the data leads you? How, 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 do you, how do you work? I start by reading absolutely everything that I can get my hands on about who I'm making a film about. So when you're making a film about Jane Fonda, who had written a memoir, I, you know, I already knew a lot. She is the one who said in her book, I'm, a, I'm writing this book because I've, I've lived my first two acts and I want to know, I want to understand, I want to understand how to live my third. And that gave me the idea of, of acts. And I said, no, this is not a three act film, this is a five act film. I watched all of Stephen's 29 films at that point that he had directed. I did make a decision to focus only on his directing, his movie empire, not DreamWorks, not all these things. I focused only on his directing. As a director, I wanted it to be a very personal film. You know, the first cut I did of it, I kind of did the whole childhood up to Jaws. And then I, it was deadly. <laughs> it was just too much information without a context for how to understand it better. And I went, oh boy, this is not working at all. So I decided to take out two of the big elements of his childhood and put them where they mattered. So his parents' divorce. Mm-hmm does not enter until he's making E.T. and Close Encounters, which are both about, one is about a divorced family and the other is about a guy, a father who leaves his family and has a conflict, you know, with his family, goes up in a spaceship and leaves. I don't make a paper cut before I go into the edit room, but it's good to have a little bit of an idea where you're going. I knew the minute that Stephen told me the Lawrence of Arabia story that I was going to start the film with that. Yeah, that's, 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 that works really well. I knew that going in, but, you know, then you work. I mean, it's a really editing. I was in the edit room for over a year wow. making it. <laughs> I mean, there's so many choices. I always laugh when people say, oh, that was so, the, the more seamless it is, the more people think I could have done that. I think, oh, my God, they have no idea. Every single frame is a decision, yeah. and it's a decision that could go 4,000 different ways. And what follows that frame is another decision. Yeah. These you know, these, and you have to make huge choices. And uh, I'm trying to remember if uh, a film where I, I actually didn't realize until I had the aha moment in the edit room when I was making the Leonard Bernstein film. I found a letter that he had written. See, I didn't have him. So I had I'd worked with his diaries and his letters, and the family gave me access to everything. At the Library of Congress, there's a room bigger than my house. And I have a big house that's just Leonard Bernstein. He even had the, the little baggies with his pencils that he <laughs> used. And uh, I found these letters. And one of them was something he had written. Actually, it was a little essay that he had written when he was um, very young. And it was about, he called the film Reaching for the Note because it came from this. The beginning was the note, and the note was God. Mm. And to the extent that the composer can reach that note and bring it down to the to earth he is a composer and to the extent of his reach partakes of the divine i thought that's it that's that's the key here his story is that he was never con taken seriously as a serious composer in his lifetime why was that because he he was writing music at a time when you know, it was all about atonal music and he he was a melodic composer and it was like oh let him you know stick to the to Broadway, you know, he's not, he didn't have any place in the concert hall, and um, and he was, and it hurt him so deeply. Hmm. And a real centerpiece of the film is is what he writes about Mahler, and how he identified with Mahler, hmm. 
Mm. And, I, and the key to my film is I thought he, he wanted to be Mahler. Yeah. And he died actually uh, unhappy, despite a joyous life and more accolades than anybody's ever had in their whole life. He felt he hadn't done it. Wow. That was a big revelation that I kind of had in the middle of the, making the film. But I didn't want it to be a sad film because there's so much joy in his life, too. You should watch it. I think you would really like it. I do the film very purposely. If there's a sad moment, I go to a high moment, musically. And it really works. So you never you never feel... I mean, I, everybody cries at the end, of course, but it's, um, it's not a sad film, even though there was sadness, deep sadness in him when, when he died. Hmm. You're living with this material, you're living with this data, you're trying to figure it out, and all of a sudden you find these uh, pieces that explains uh, or allows you to see the bigger pattern, you know, the, the, the over, uh, the arc of the story. Yeah, and, it, and every film is totally different. I mean, I, when I did Judy Garland, there wasn't anybody living who worked with her that I wanted, that I wanted to interview. I mean, there was hardly anybody left. I wanted to get to the fact that Judy Garland... I didn't want, <laughs> if you say Judy Garland, and that's what I didn't like about the Renee Zellweger movie, it's, oh, she was a drunk. Oh, she fell on stage. Oh, she didn't show up in time. Oh, she was fired. You know, blah, blah, blah. I said, this was the, the hardest working woman in Hollywood and and an and a unbelievable talent. She could sing, she could dance, she could act, she could do everything. And I want, that's the story I want to tell. So I wanted to only hear the voices of people who had been with her. So I read everything, and of course they weren't around anymore. I read everything that George Cukor ever said about her because he directed her in Stars Born. I read everything that Vincent Minnelli said about her. I read everything that Joe Mankiewicz said. I read, you know, and I had the tapes that she had started to make about her life story before she died, which she did not finish. And I didn't use them because she would be drunk by the end of each session. And I, that's not, I want that to be the story. So I hired actors. I got a, a, vo a, a voice casting person and I sent samples of Judy's voice and George Cooper's voice and all these people and actors came in and auditioned and you never saw a single interview. It was all a voice drama and it worked really well. <clears throat> it won the Emmy for Outstanding Documentary, by the way. And uh, I did 87 other interviews for Steven Spielberg besides Steven Spielberg. I mean, I had four shelves, you know, six feet long with, with books, transcript books, and they are the Bible. And you will do selects from it and say, okay, that's interesting. But that's not so interesting. That's interesting. And then you get a selects book made, but it's always still go back. And it's so funny. Sometimes the thing that you thought wasn't so interesting becomes the most interesting thing, or it's the bridge that you needed that you didn't know. So you, I, I, and I make cards on all these things and I you put it on the floor practically and you kind of put a mosaic on it you say oh that person's saying something that connects with what that person's saying well, so yeah. that you know it's 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 really fun I love the editing process so have you had a situation where you were really struggling with with uh, what is the story here and and how, how did you solve it at the end of the day <laughs> Well, the films that I've chosen to direct are all stories that I wanted to tell, so I didn't actually have that problem. Uh, when I started the series, my kids were small, smaller. They're now 41 and 42. And <clears throat> I remember that when it was really tough, it was sometimes tough to keep going, I would show them a rough cut of something I thought that they should know about. Martha Graham, whatever. 
and I would watch their faces. And they didn't ever want to watch them. Do we have to? <laughs> Do we have to? Yeah, you have to. And I want to hear your feelings about it. And they were transformed by these stories. It almost makes me cry to think about that. They were transformed. They were different people after they'd seen these stories than before. And I said, that's why this is an important series. And I still believe that. I still believe that those stories need to be, be told. And, it's, and I'm, 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 you know, I, I hope that I'm wrong about um, there being less places to do that than public television. But that's what, it, when I look at what's on offer, that's how I feel. it seems to me that that's the case. What is your next project? I don't know. I, I'm, I'm waiting to hear. Uh, I, I can't say. I'm sorry. I know. I, know, I understand. <laughs> I understand. Uh, I can't. I'm sorry. Um, it'll be, but it will be something, if it works out, it's going to be very contemporary and very different from anything I've ever done. Oh, I see. Exciting. Yeah. Well, Susan, thank you so much for taking the time. I mean, uh, it, it's, it's, it's been a pleasure, and I, I admire your work. Uh, you've done some great movies, and you're, you're an institution now. How does that feel? Honest <laughs> to God, I used to say about American Masters for years and years and years and years, uh, we were the little engine that could. <laughs> and, and who knew that the little engine that could would become a cultural institution Yeah. I, I, I could never have guessed it in a million years. I mean, when I started it, as I said, it was uh, it was out of passion, yeah. and and that passion never went away. Um, it's still there. This is Art Insiders New York. My name is Anders Holst. Thank you for listening, and if you enjoyed this episode of the Art Insiders New York podcast, spread the word to family and friends. Write a review on iTunes or follow us at artinsidersnewyork.com. It is very much appreciated. Thank you. This episode was produced by UOM LLC, copyright 2020.